good to see you. Um, we're going to get started uh, today with our session. Um, at the end, Alan's got a couple of announcements for you. want to make sure you ha spend some time praying together. Uh, one of the weaknesses of this format, I I've enjoyed this very much, and we've got a couple more weeks of this together. One of the weaknesses is we haven't really emphasized the togetherness. It's been more of a you sitting and listening uh, so, you know, we're eager to get back to more of a, more of an intimate, uh, y'all investing in one another's lives and praying together. And, uh, so that's coming soon, but I've enjoyed getting to talk to y'all and getting to, to spend time with you each week. Um, we're going to talk today again about dealing with issues in your most important relationships where there's conflict and where there's deep dug in conflict, where, where you think this is insurmountable. Um, I was... I was reading uh, recently, any of y'all familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? Okay, a few of you. So he talks in his book, one of his books about a guy named John Gottman, who's one of the world's foremost authorities on marriage. Uh, he, he's got this institute where, where he talks about, uh, where, where he brings in couples and they sit down and, and he just basically says, okay, you guys just talk about anything you disagree with for the next 15 minutes, we're going to videotape you. And it doesn't have to be, any, you know, just whatever, you know. We disagree about how much money we spend at the grocery store. We disagree about what to watch on TV on Friday nights or whatever. And they sit and they discuss, and he videotapes it. And then afterwards, he and his staff will sit and, and look for certain cues in their communication, and they can identify the problems in their relationship. It's really genius. He said he's done this so long, he can sit in a restaurant and overhear another couple talking at the next table over and say, okay, they're not going to make it, just based on their communication. And he's identified... The, the different things that we do when we're talking to someone, someone important in our lives, and, and some of those things are bad and some of those things are killers. And he said the worst thing for a relationship is what he called contempt. You know, there's plenty of criticism's bad and defensiveness is bad and whining's bad and all that's bad, but nothing is as bad as contempt. And he defines contempt as when you kind of roll your eyes when they say something, or you make that kind of scoffing sound like, well, you know, if you would have told me I needed to be there, I would have been there on time, and you go, yeah, right. That's contempt. Contempt is where it's, it's obvious you just have no regard for the person. When contempt gets into a relationship, it's, it's a killer for that relationship. You've seen that when your kids were teenagers, right? And, and they had contempt towards you. Or if your kids aren't teenagers yet, your day is coming. Um, you know, you, you've seen it in, in relationships uh, of other kinds, certainly in work relationships and in marriage. It's a killer. When you get to that point where that person you're married to can't do anything right and you just, you just have contempt for them. And I, I just need to start by saying something, and I hope this doesn't hurt me in your eyes as your pastor, but I just got to confess to you, I'm a really lousy marriage counselor. Okay, I, I've got a terrible record of marriage counseling. And I used to think I would be good at this because I'm good at listening. I'm pretty empathetic. I like people. You know, I'm called to ministry. Turns out just because you can preach a sermon doesn't mean you can help two people work through their issues. All right. There's a two different skills. And, and here's what would happen down through the years. So a couple would come to me and these are friends. These are people I love, people I respect. And here's how it would go. And, and listen, it's not always the, the woman initiating it, but I'm just going to say it that way to, for simplicity. So she would sit down and she would say, she would start listing all the things that she has to deal with. And here's how bad he is to me. Now, please keep in mind, none of what I'm talking about is abuse, physical abuse, but it's all things that 
drove her nuts. And then his response would be, can you believe this? I mean, you know me, I'm a good guy, and I'm way better to her than most men are to their wives, and, and can you believe how unreasonable she is, how, how she's overreacting to things or overemphasizing things? And I would kind of try to make peace, try to, try to calm them both down, and then I'd offer some, some uh, suggestions that I thought were helpful, and they would politely listen, and then I'd pray over them, and they'd go home, and I'd have the distinct impression they were madder when they left than when they got there. And they were. And so now I just understand when couples are at that point in their relationship, I have a list of professionals I can send them to. Um, but I always wondered, why is that? How can, how can two Christian people both love Jesus, both at one point loved each other, and now they've reached this point where there's such contempt in their relationship with each other? How can that happen? And a, about a year ago, I read a quote, wasn't even in a Christian book, but it, it finally made sense to me. This is from a book called, I love this title, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. You like that? So here's the quote. It should be on the, on the screen. The vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong. You ever been in that shape? While justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. When I read that quote, it just its like a light went on. I'm like, yeah, that's right. It's not, it's not all these other things that we blame for our problems in our relationship. You know, when you're, when your child is angry with you, it's not just because of hormones, right? When you're, when you're mad at your, at your friend, uh, when you're mad at your spouse, when you're mad at, at someone important in your life, it's not, it's not the, the thing you think it is. It's what's going on inside of you. It's self-justification. And that's, that was the problem in all those counseling situations because when I went back and replayed all those in my mind, here's what would happen. Neither one of those people came to me saying, hey, Jeff, what can you do to help us work together to find solutions? That's not where they were. Where they were was, hey, Jeff, I've dug a little foxhole over here, and I've gotten into that foxhole, and I'm lobbing grenades at her because she's unreasonable. She expects all these things that no woman should expect from a man. So jump in this foxhole with me and tell her that she's got it good and to, and to back off. Meanwhile, she's got her own little foxhole over here where she's like, Jeff, jump in here with me and tell him that no woman should have to live with the things I have to deal with. Tell, tell him that he's the sorriest man alive and he needs to straighten out. And so when I would offer suggestions, they were like, well, no, because that makes it sound like it's equally my fault. That makes it sound like we're both at fault here and, and it's clearly his fault. It's clearly her fault. Why don't you get into the foxhole with me? I mean, I'm the good guy here. He's the bad guy. They couldn't get it through their heads that, no, I have things to work. I mean, they might even acknowledge, I know I'm not perfect. They would say things like that. Oh, I know I'm, I, I can be hard to live with, but there was always a but. There's some big buts in marriage, right? Big buts in relationships. You can take that any way you want to. <laughs> Why do we do this? Why do we, and we do this in all our relationships when there's difficulties. We dig a foxhole. We do it for self-protection. We do it because it hurts too much. 
to admit responsibility. It, it hurts too much to look at ourselves honestly. We're already wounded, right? And it hurts to say, hey, let me look at the, at the part I play in this. It's so much better when there's relational pain to blame the other person because then that's at least some kind of consolation. Hey, I've got all this stress and my, my relationship isn't the way I want it to be, but at least I can take solace in the fact that me and all my friends or me and my parents or me and whoever I complain to can all agree that that's the bad guy over there. That's the only consolation we have. And so we, we get into this position where we're, we lie to ourselves. I know this is an extreme example, but I, I read a story about a couple who was talking to a counselor and uh, she was talking about he drinks too much and she said tell him about the time you took our daughter to the bar and he goes oh she always makes such a big deal about that but it was no, it was no big thing we my daughter and I had been out together and we were having some fun and I thought well I just need a quick drink and I took her and I didn't want to take her into the bar so I just said wait here in the car and I went inside and I had a few drinks and you know I, I guess I stayed a little longer than I should but it, it was okay um and the wife said, no, tell him the truth. And he wouldn't say anything. And finally she said, she looked at the counselor and said, he locked her in the trunk and left the car running because it was cold, but the car ran out of gas because he was in there so long. And she ended up with frostbite and left, lost some of her toes and her hearing's damaged. And when he heard the truth spoken like that, he just burst into tears because he'd been lying to himself all the time saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't a big deal. That's how deep our capacity for self-deception is. We can tell ourselves it's all that other person's fault, and we'll believe it. And if you don't think you're capable of that kind of self-deception, if you sit there and say, well, I'm not like that guy, that drunk, you're wrong, because you are, and I am. We're capable of that. So what's the answer? Well, it's helpful to have a professional when you get to that point where there's contempt in your relationship, where you're both dug in, whatever the relationship might be. It's good to talk to a professional. That's what they're trained to do. But ultimately, and I know I'm a preacher and this is the party line, but I believe this with all my heart. Ultimately, the gospel is the answer. Ultimately, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. I don't mean by that that you just need to read Scripture and, and everything's fine. I don't mean by that that uh, one of you is, is lost and needs to get saved, although sometimes that's the case. What I mean by that is the gospel is more than about our initial salvation. The gospel is about more than the day you walk forward and pray a prayer and get baptized. So let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Most of you, if you grew up in church or you've read the Bible, you know this story, but I want to look at it from a different angle today. This is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 through 14, it should be on the screen too. This is Jesus said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went into, up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So think about that statement first. First of all, Pharisees were members of a particular sect of the, of the Jewish faith. And they weren't, it's, it's not like you could say, hey, I think I want to be a Pharisee. What's the, uh, what's the admission charge? What's the cover charge? You know, how much, how much do I have to, no. 
Pharisees were Pharisees because they adapted to a certain lifestyle. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament, or as they called it, the Torah, the Law and the Prophets. They knew them all by heart. And they lived them. I mean, they walked around. Everybody could, you could follow a Pharisee around and he wouldn't disobey. Uh, by the letter of the law, he wouldn't disobey any one of those laws. You couldn't catch him doing a wrong deed. Because the Pharisees, their whole point was, hey, I'm part of this group because I believe in the power of God's word. And I believe that if, if we are an example and teachers to our nation, our nation will be strong. Now, does that sound like a group that you would have supported if you lived in first century Israel? Yeah, it, it does for me. Yeah, I think all of us would have said either I want to be part of that or yeah, I want to support that. So they were known as heroes. The problem was their adherence to law was the sum total of their whole faith. Their faith was come down to nothing but I follow these rules, therefore I'm good. They didn't know anything about knowing God personally. They didn't know anything about the grace of God and how God loves us in the midst of our sin. Their religion made them proud of themselves. That's the problem with man-made religion. Even when the religion believes all the right things intellectually, which they did, it can be the worst thing for you because it makes you proud of your own self. It takes you away from dependence upon God. And that's where they were. They were self-justifying. They said, I'm not the problem. They are. This Pharisee said, I'm not the problem with our society. That tax collector is. Now, you want to know something? Again, we would have agreed with him. When Jesus is telling this story, if you and I would have been in the crowds, if we would have been typical Israelites, we would have said, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because a tax collector, a tax collector, I mean, let's face it, we don't, none of us like the IRS now, right? By the way, we have a deacon who's a former IRS employee. I don't want to, you know, but God loves them too. So, um, but in... In that culture, it was even worse because now when I pay taxes, at least my taxes go to my own government. The Jewish tax collectors were working for the Roman Empire. They were taking money from their neighbors to give to the enemy. And they were making a, a lot of money doing it because the way the Romans did things, this was pretty intelligent on their part. They said, you collect this much money, deliver that much to us, whatever you collect over that, you can keep. So a tax collector could jack up his rates and keep the profit as long as he paid uh, what was due to Rome. So this tax collector, obviously, was despised. He was a crook. If you and I had been listening to this story, imagine Jesus told it today, it would have been, here comes a war hero and here comes a drug dealer. Now whose side are you going to be on? Here comes, here comes a patriot here comes a first responder who saved many lives, and here comes a human trafficker, right? That's how Jesus would tell that story today. But notice the rest of the story. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That verse, verse 14, you know, Luke, none of the gospel writers really record details like this, but I, I would be willing to bet that the crowd gasped when he said that. Because it just went so against what they believed. And his point was, 
That tax collector didn't justify himself at all. That tax collector, out of the two of them, he was the one who was honest, the one who saw himself realistically and said, I've got nothing, God. I'm standing before you now. I've got nothing to commend myself. That Pharisee comes in, he's like, Lord, thank you for making me such a great guy. And by the way, Jewish men in that time literally would pray every day, Lord, thank you that you did not make me a Gentile or a woman. Here comes this tax collector who says, Lord, I've got nothing. Nothing to commend myself. Just have mercy on me, if you will, because I am a sinner. Go back to verse 9. What does it say? To some, who's he telling the story to? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. That's what I'm talking about. That's our problem in our relationships. The biggest problem we have in our relationships is we're confident of our own righteousness and we blame the other person. We're confident that we're in the right. And you know what? I do it too. When, when there's problems in one of my relationships, when one of my kids is being weird, it's their fault. And their mother has the audacity to tell me things I could do different to make it better. And that's just ridiculous because I'm the adult, right? I do everything right. I've got it all down. If they would just listen to me, things would go well. That's self-justifying. Instead of saying, you know, maybe right now is not the time to chew them out. Maybe now's the time you need to believe in them. Maybe now's the time you need to listen. Or conversely, maybe now's the time you need to take a stand instead of being their best friend. In our relationship in marriage, there are times when I look back on big conflicts we've had and how during the midst of that conflict, it was all her fault. And some of you are like, um, we know Carrie. Sorry, dude, but it was you. Okay, whatever. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. At the time, I was completely convinced I was in the right. And she was the one that was unreasonable because that's how we are. So what do we do about that? How does the gospel help us? The gospel, the gospel is the, the constant reminder that we're sinners, but God's bigger than our sin. That's how the gospel helps us. So anytime you try to tackle a problem on your own and say, I got this, you're not working through the gospel. When instead, you say, okay, Lord, I got this relational problem. Where's my responsibility? Because I know I'm a sinner. I know I did something to contribute to this. Secondly, I know you're able to forgive. I know you're able to bring reconciliation. That's how the gospel works. So how, how does that work in, in our relationships? Three things. Number one, recognize this tendency in yourself. Recognize this self-justifying in yourself and call it what it is. So when you're irritated with someone, somebody important in your life, tell yourself what's really going on. I mean, this is true in any time you get irritated, right? When, when you get cut off on the freeway and you get mad and, and that certain finger flies up, right? None of y'all would ever do that, I know, but um, people on the freeway sometimes do. Why does that happen? Is it all that guy's fault because he cut you off? Is it all that little old lady's fault because she's driving so slow in the left-hand lane with her right turn blinker on for the last five miles? Well, sure, she bears responsibility. Sure, he bears responsibility. But you're responsible for how you responded to that. Why are you in such a hurry? Why does it matter so much that you had to hit the brakes when that guy pulled over? I mean, that's true in our more important relationships too. What have I done to contribute this? 
Tell yourself what's going on. I'm getting mad right now because I want to think it's all that person's fault. This is my pride being wounded. This is my desire for control being stepped on. And stop yourself before you escalate. In fact, I'm going to say something you're going to think is unreasonable, but I believe in it. Don't even indulge your own desire to sit and stew on it. Because that's what we do, right? And we think this is maturity. Okay, she's making me mad and I feel like reaming her out. I'm not going to because I'm a bigger person than that. I'm just going to sit down and think about how evil she is. Because I'm mature. Because I'm enlightened. Because I'm godly. So that's what Jesus would do. If instead you say, okay, I know that's where my mind wants to go and it feels good. You know, self-pity and contempt are like a big hot tub. They're very comforting. Problem is, hot tub isn't what you need right now. So recognize what's going on. Call it what it is. Don't indulge that desire. Sit down and say, these thoughts that I'm thinking are not true. They're not right. They're not the whole truth. Secondly, don't fixate on how you want them to change. Remember that quote that I said was so important? Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. That's where it starts. When we get to the point where we're saying, all we can think of is, I've got to change this person. I've got to change this person. Okay, you want to hear a really corny joke? It's time for a really corny joke. Okay, so... Um, Young bride getting married. She's really, really nervous about standing in front of all those people. She's really nervous about walking in and everybody's eyes are going to be on her. And so the, the minister says to her, okay, here's what you need to do. Just don't even think about it. Just as you're walking, just look down and think, I'm going to walk this aisle. Just I'm going to walk this aisle. Just, all that, just think about that. And then as you get halfway down the aisle, look up and, and find the altar and just stare at the altar. Just focus on that. That's your goal. You get there, you get there, and you'll be fine. And then you'll get there and you look and then you focus on him, right? Because that's the whole point. Once you're up there at the altar, you're going to focus on him. So wedding day comes, doors open, everybody stands. She's walking down the aisle and she's saying to herself, loud enough for everybody to hear, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll... You're welcome. So that, that's where it starts, right? This desire to point out the flaws in the other person. This desire to change them. Don't fixate on that stuff. Listen, every one of us, in every one of our relationships, we can come up with a whole list of things we'd like to change about the other person. How much time do we sit around thinking about, you know, here's a list of five things I could do that I know if I did these five things, this relationship would be better. How many of us can name that? That should be our focus. And it's not that those things, the list that you have for that other person doesn't matter. We'll get to that in a moment, but don't fixate on that. Number three, and this is the whole point, get out of your foxhole. You're dug in in that relationship. You're not moving. It's that other person's fault, and you're going you're gonna to be in that, in that foxhole protecting yourself and lobbing your little insults and your little accusations and your little suggestions and your little hints. And it's time to come out of there and come to this other person in a spirit of, gentleness and humility with all your weapons laid down. And what I mean by that is you come to them and you've already made an agreement with yourself no matter how she responds, I'm not going to respond in anger. I'm going to come and I'm, 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 no matter what, I'm not going to lash back. I'm not going to fight back. And you just come with humility and say, okay, 
things aren't right between us, and I think I know why. Here's the things I've done wrong. Here's the things I wish I could go back and undo. Here's the things I'd like to do differently from now on. I hope you can forgive me and just leave it at that. Because chances are, the hallelujah chorus isn't going to burst out at that moment. Chances are, that person's not going to wrap their arms around you and say, ah, I'm so glad you said that. Now things are fine. But that's a start. That's the way healing begins. And, and I know some of you are like, but how is that ever going to change this other person? Because there's legitimate things wrong with them. I know that. But you can't deal with those things when you're both in a foxhole, right? When you're both just lobbing grenades at each other. Somebody's got to get out first. Somebody's got to walk across no man's land and approach that other person with a white flag in their hand. And that's a scary place to be. I agree. Because you can get hurt. You can really get hurt when you are open and vulnerable like that. And it may not work. That, mother, that other person may, may be so angry, they may not accept what you have to say. But you'll never get there unless you try. Remember, we talked about it last week in Romans. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Have you done everything possible? As far as it depends on you, have you done everything you can to make things right with this other person? That's not true if you're sitting there talking about how bad they are, how evil they are, how stubborn they are. But if, if you can be patient and forgiving enough to prove to them this is not some kind of ploy, this is not some kind of trick, I really am seriously coming to you in a spirit of humility, confessing to you I've done bad things, I've damaged our relationship and I want to make things right. If you can coax them out of their side and y'all can meet in the middle, there's a point in a relationship where it's healthy enough to say, listen, I love you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you no matter what. I'm your dad no matter how you act. I'm your husband no matter what happens. I'm, I'm your best friend no matter what. But here's some things I have to have. I mean, here's some things that if we're going to be happy together, I need for you to do this for me. Now, what can I do for you? That's how you approach it. But only once you've made that first step of saying, I'm coming out, I'm, I'm sharing with you openly, here's my responsibility as I see it, and I'm willing to, to change. Now, is that risky? Absolutely. Is it easier to stay in the foxhole? Absolutely. Are all your friends and your family telling you to stay in the foxhole? Yeah, because they're agreeing with you that that other person is at fault. But think about what you once had with this person. Think about what your dreams once were with that person. Think about how important they should be to you, and maybe still are. Isn't it worth the risk and the hit to your pride to do what is necessary to make things right? This is not the way we were supposed to live. I mean, anyway, Jesus thought it was worth the risk. Jesus thought it was worth taking the steps. And guess what? He didn't have any responsibility. He took our responsibility upon himself. He said, here we are. I'm, I'm here. I'm righteous. And you're wicked. And he's the only person who was justified in justifying himself. And he threw that away and said, okay, why not? I'll just take all of the responsibility for your faults. And it killed him. So that we could have this with him. So that we could have this with one another.
See, the good news is, the good news is, ultimately, ultimately, there's reconciliation. Between the people of God, there's, there's reconciliation. I, I like to think about um, in heaven how Christians that used to just grate on each other and, and they split way back in time and they've been so stubborn, they never got back together. And then in heaven, they'll look at each other and go, why did we waste all those years? I know, I know, I know we had problems, but we could have worked through that stuff. And I think there's going to be some tears, some tears of regret, but also some tears of joy, tears of thank you for bringing, bringing us back together, Jesus. I think he wants that for us right now. So think about problems in your most important relationships and think about where is my own self-justification adding to this, my own lying to myself about it's their fault. All right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful for who you are, and I'm grateful for your grace, your forgiveness, and your courage. Thank you for taking responsibility for problems that weren't your fault, so that we who were at fault could be free. I thank you, Lord, for doing what was necessary to bring us back together, for reconciling our relationship with you. And now, Lord, help us to, to look honestly on the relationships in our own lives. Lord, some of us are estranged from siblings, from parents, Lord, from people we used to call close friends. Lord, some of us are, are struggling in our relationship with our, our kids. Lord, some of us are, are struggling in, in relationships uh, within marriage. And, and Lord, it's not that it's not that we're all at fault. It's not that there's not a problem on the other side, but Lord, oftentimes it's, it's that we refuse to look at our own part in this. Please help us to overcome this. Help us to live by the gospel, knowing each day we need your grace just to survive and fully admitting our part. Lord, help us to be people of peace and to make peace with others. Lord, help us to be ministers of reconciliation according to your holy will. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.